What's up, Wizards? It's time for Rule Zero, the show that helps you prepare for the best game of Commander. I'm Taylor. And I'm Sean. We're here to help you cultivate a great playgroup, great decks, and an openness to outside-the-box variants and homebrew rules. Sean, what's something in the world of Magic that's got you excited right now? Well, just a couple days ago, there was a secret lair honoring the godfather of Commander, Sheldon Minery, who recently passed away after a long battle with cancer. Now, I've never met him personally, but I did have the pleasure of talking with him a little bit online, usually about the ban list or something I was not particularly pleased about. What always impressed him was he just had this great composure. He was always a gentleman, uh, despite probably taking a lot of attacks from people in the Magic community over the years for like, why did you ban my favorite card? But (laughs) basically, as a fitting tribute, I think... And in a, in a rare, I guess, in these days moment for Wizards not being completely thirsty for so much money, they're creating a secret lair that is not time-sensitive, unlike all of their other secret lairs these days, where you have to like get in quick and people will scalp them. Thankfully, this is not. Um, it's Sheldon-inspired cards that he helped to work on. He was working directly with Gavin Verhey on this. For cards that really meant a lot to him, and I think are some, some bangers. The list of the cards of the seven that are being printed with new art, new quotes, all related to Sheldon Minery are Teferi's Protection, Ella Domri's Vineyard, Command Tower, Soul Ring, an Italian version of Greater Good, Ruhan of the Fomari, skinned as Sheldon the Commander, quote-unquote, because he had a deck that was like, stop hitting yourself. That was a very famous deck of his that ran red, white, blue, sort of Aikido-style effects. I feel like I didn't list all seven, but it's a great build. You can find it online. Um, The sale is starting on February 26th, running through March 24th. And if you order between that time, you're supposedly guaranteed to get a copy. It's like $39.99 for the non-foil and $49.99 for the foil. But 50% of that goes to the American Cancer Society with Wizards guaranteeing that at least they're going to get $250,000 at minimum. And I imagine it's going to be a lot more because the excitement for this is, is probably through the roof. Absolutely. I think people have so much respect for him because he not only helped to establish Commander for what it was, but he stuck around and made sure that it was successful. Uh, he took part in conventions, magic cons, all those other things that helped to create this format that we know and love. I think the last one was Ink Shield, and it's got him on that oh, one too. yeah. See, that's the most important one in my world because I have a spirits deck, and it's dedicated to Sheldon, actually. After his passing, we kind of, some of us made some decks like that. I would love to run the copy with him kind of sending out these inkling spirits into the world. We know Sheldon as establishing this format that we love so much that we play every week or as often as we can. And it was through his starting of this that we had to learn to build some decks. And that's what we're trying to talk about this week. What's our philosophy on building decks? So Sean, I am guilty of finding a new commander and thinking that it's the coolest thing ever and I've got to build it right away. I typically follow that like what's hot what's not kind of list i see the cool things that are spoiled and i get excited for them just like everyone else does i find myself not necessarily looking for new commanders based off of deep dives but just what's newly released so when it comes to brainstorming for decks i go with what's popular what about you how do you go about picking a new commander to want to build around well we're gonna bring some balance i suppose and then we're I tend to be on the opposite end of the spectrum. There's a young teenage boy within this 45-year-old body of mine that is like 
Ugh, popular? Gross. <laughs> I want a commander that no one would play ever. <laughs> right. So, like, the lower on the EDH rec list that it is, the more excited I am to try and build it. So, just from an overview of things, bird's eye view, when it comes to building a deck, I struggle a little bit because what I end up doing is I, I go through my entire collection and I literally touch every single card and I think, does this bring joy to this deck? And I put it into a pile. And by the time I'm done, I've got this pile of like 200, 300 cards. 300 cards. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it creates this problem. And so I've had to switch the way that I build decks to go from touching every single card to come up with a bit more of a structured approach. And we're going to break that down here in a little bit, but I have gone to following some sort of structured approach now so that I know that I'm I'm hitting all the things I have to include. Card draw, ramp, so on and so forth. What about you? How did you start off building decks and, and what are you doing now? When I started building commander decks, it was a horror show. I built decks from the original Elder Dragon. I didn't even know about color identity. I remember using a card called Naked Singularity that basically changes every color of mana to a different color. Nobody knows what they can produce anymore. <laughs> and I put that in a three-color deck, which I couldn't do because of the color identity rules, but I had no idea. Right. And those decks were horrific. Like, it would take three hours to even pretend to get to the end of the game in a 1v1 <laughs> match with me and my wife. So now I do have a pattern, and it's a little bit different, I think, than what Taylor's running with, but we're going to share both because you need structure. I'm a firm believer in that even if you're a super creative type, you're going to perform better if you're within a structure. Because otherwise you have those 300 cards and you, now you have to put 200 back at some point and you know, your life just becomes chaos. Actually, a friend of ours in our group text, he's a bit newer to magic. He was asking kind of how we build decks. And I jumped into the group chat and I told him what I do. And I told him that we were going to be talking about this in this episode. And I think, like you said, it's important to make sure you do certain things because you can put in your favorite cards, but if you don't have card draw to get to it, you might not ever see that card that you really want to play. And that's the biggest feel bad is not getting to play the cards that you want to play. I think that we can look at what works well, what doesn't work so well, and how we came to this conclusion. So I'm a big fan of Tomer at MTG Goldfish, does a lot of budget pre-con upgrade guides, budget deck guides, and he always includes his template, like what he's looking for. And I think this goes a good way for having that sense of structure, making sure that you're doing certain things. And he's got a list of about eight things that you have to make sure that your deck can do. I'm doing something similar in the way that I like to build decks. He has very specific number targets that he's trying to hit. I try to find a lot of potential between cards. So hopefully my card can fill more than just one. one. Role. Exactly, yeah. more than one role. So his first thing that he really wants to make sure you do is hit 50 mana. And that can be lands and ramp, some sort of split depending on the type of deck. A lot of lands and a few items of ramp, 37 to 13 lands to ramp there. You can't go wrong with that. And his second metric is to have 10 card draw spells, cards that net you at least two cards in your hand, which will help you get to those favorites that you have. Yeah. And then you've got to eat your veggies with this one too. The next one he says is eight targeted removal. That can be creature removal, artifact removal, enchantment removal, and I'm really happy that it includes counter magic because blue can't always deal with everything, but if you can stop that thing before it even hits the battlefield, you've removed that effectively. Absolutely. If you don't counter the Atraxa or the Niv-Mizzet, you're too late. Well, the new Niv-Mizzets 
You can't counter, so you gotta be Fair careful. <laughs> but you can put it back in their hand. Oh, so you're saying that reprieve might be a way to tart some removal hey, here, maybe? Just saying. Reprieve is from Lord of the Rings. It's white and one. It says return target spell to hand, draw a card. Absolutely. I like that a lot. And that's what we're talking about. We want to find cards that can blend those two lines. So it's not full on card draw, but at least replaces itself. So you don't feel so bad playing it. Even for two mana. The fourth metric is three board wipes. Creature light decks might want one more. Creature heavy decks might want one less. There's always moments in the game where you just feel like, okay, I need to restart the game. Someone has gotten out of control. You have to run at least a number of board wipes. I think this is a pretty accurate number. I think we've seen some really interesting board wipes lately, and especially in the white, I see a lot of people playing Farewell. Before I tell you my opinion of it, how do you feel about Farewell? My biggest maybe hot take, I don't know, is that it's another example of why Wizards want super friend decks to ruin everyone's life. The only thing it doesn't exile is Planeswalkers. Yeah, I, I hate it actually, because if you choose all modes, which most people are doing, which, hey, that's your prerogative, you can do it. I think of it as a slightly worse Cyclonic Rift because it's resetting the entire game from everyone, right? So you're getting rid of all the enchantments, you're getting rid of your artifact ramp, you're getting rid of the creatures that were on the battlefield. At least with Cyclonic Rift, the person who casts it hopefully has a board and they can swing out, finish the game, let's shuffle up and play another one. I think with Farewell, we can get more into this later, but I think that it's an example of a card that maybe too many people are playing. If you're playing a Super Friends deck, go for it. But that's a rough card to encounter. Yeah, I think Farewell does create a lot of feel-bads. Even if you're exiling a graveyard that you don't think the person really cares a lot about, you don't know that. And if it doesn't bother you that much, why are you exiling it in the first place? The fact that it gives you the option to just remove everything from the game can really slow a lot of people down. Some people who are just doing totally innocuous or funny things, that's not even a threat to you. They put it in the Doctor Who set as well. I've met some people that have started to play because of the Doctor Who set. Mm. And I think that's a card that's a little bit tricky to put in the hands of a new player because they might not have the best evaluation of the board and say, oh, I've got the six mana to cast this. Let me do what I can. But then that resets the entire game in a way that doesn't help us get to that finish line and to find a winner. And we'll get to it soon, but I much prefer over a bunch of board wipes a different type of card. And we'll talk about that in my personal metrics. Okay. The next one up from Tomer is uh, to have some graveyard recursion. I think this is really important to be able to get things back from the bin, be it a creature, a land, whatever you might need. And, and that recursion can come in different ways depending on how your deck wants to play. Absolutely. And two flexible tutors. Um, depending on your meta, you might want more expensive ones, but even the cheap ones like two mana and two black or something for getting any card. Pretty powerful in a game of Commander. Yeah, Diabolic Tutor to go and get whatever you might need is pretty good. I mean, that's hard to beat, especially if you're trying to build up a combo. We play with our Rule 7 decks a way that you you can't run go and get anything. Right. But you can run tutors that let you get a specific thing. So like an Enlightened Tutor to go and get an Artifact or an Enchantment. We can typically find tutors that work in any deck for what that deck's trying to do. I think people will find it very interesting, the reasons why we've done this. I think it makes the game a lot more interactive. We have one graveyard hate. Tomer says, since you need graveyard decks, you need to keep them honest. You have to run at least one. So a Bajuka Bog or, or a Scavenger Grounds or whatever. 
And the last one is a finisher, something that can win the game the turn you cast it. I think that people are starting to shy away from things like Craterhoof Behemoth, which is fine. I think that it's it's run its course. It was really popular for the heyday of EDH when it was first getting started. Mm-hmm. But something that can help kind of end the game. I think every deck needs that. Sometimes the game just needs to end, and that's okay. If you're with friends, you'll shuffle up, you'll play another one, and then you get your chance that turn. But if somebody casts an Insurrection, that's fine. Like, how many hours do we need this to go on? Right. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that's important too, because Insurrection costing 10 mana, I think. If you can't stop that. Right. Or maybe you should let it happen. A friend that I've started to play with at the shop, he can recognize that, okay, I'm not going to come back from this. I'd much rather just play another game and get to try out this new deck I've built or whatever. And so even though he might be holding an Aetherize to bounce all the attacking creatures, what's the good in bouncing all those attacking creatures if the game's going to go on for another hour? Absolutely. Like, an Insurrection is a great story for whoever cast it. So let him have it. That's fine. That's Tomer's template that he uses. You've got one that I think plays off of this a little bit. But run us through it. What's your personal deck-building template here? I think one of the things that I change up a little bit, and I didn't go strictly off of Tomer's list, but I kind of looked at it and thought about, well... What are the things I actually care about in my deck building? The first is I run 10 mana rocks or ramp spells. I almost always run 40 lands. Usually it comes down to about 38 because there are some cards I want to squeeze in. But I run a lot of lands because I hate not hitting my lands. It's one of my biggest pet peeves. And unlike Arena Brawl, which has like some conspiracy theory against me, (laughs) where no matter how well I build my deck or how many lands I play, I only draw two. (laughs) <laughs> in real life, the numbers actually work out pretty well. If you run 40, you're you're pretty much going to hit all of your lands whenever you need them. You can't play the game if you don't have the mana to cast those spells you want. If you're trying to cast big dragons, you need lands. Right. So next I run four to five board wipes. This is a little bit higher than their list, but I don't run as much targeted removal. And I think because I don't like the value of a one for one. Yeah. And I very political in nature so i tend to throughout the game try to use that to pepper comments in be like oh what's that card you played let me read that out loud so that everyone at the table can hear how bad it is or whatever and so you can run a little bit of a little bit fewer target removal if other people are doing it for you no i'm not great at the politics i come from playing like competitive i i like to win and i still do in commander but my, my constant line is, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> so every time you wipe my board, you had to do what you had to do. <laughs> it is it is the escape hatch. I'm not going to obviously board wipe myself if I'm in a good position. But if I have two opponents, say like you and somebody else, and for some reason they destroyed your cool enchantment, you're not coming at me. You're going at them. Right. So I'm going to let that happen. I am a vindictive player. <laughs> <laughs> I think we all are. And if we admit extent, it, you yeah. know, yeah. it's like if somebody ruins your cool thing, well, yeah, they're getting all the guns <laughs> and I'm just going to sit back with mana up and watch. Right. <laughs> and you usually can come out on top from that. And you usually do. So next up, we've got graveyard hate. I like to do it targeted. I don't want to remove everyone's like with a farewell, um, but I run at least two graveyard hate cards, typically something like a Bajookabog scavenger grounds and or like a, a Relic of Progenitus or whatever the new hot version of that is in yeah. a deck. Um, so that I can remove cards out of the graveyard. Um, I also run... This one's controversial. I run at least two targeted land destruction spells. Usually three. I run Strip Mine. I run 
<laughs> those cards that people tend to shy away from because they hate LD. But let's face it, if there's a player going off with Nykthos, someone needs to take that out. And I'm going to be the person who is happy to do it. And I think, too, you're not abusing the strip mine. Like, you're not also playing Crucible of Worlds and, right. and hitting that. And I think that strip mine, demolition field, field of ruin. I'm a little less high on Field of Ruin now that we have Demolition Field, but it's cool because those are colorless cards that can go into any deck. Same thing for your, your Tormod Crypts and your Relic of Progenitus. These are cards that are great staples to put in your deck until you find the card that matches the identity. So in my Galta deck, I think it's Tranquil Frillback. Mm-hmm. Tranquil Frillback. Yeah, you can a, pay a little extra to it. Yeah, you pay an extra green and you can exile a target graveyard, and, and that is a great replacement. I want creatures to help reduce the cost of Galta. And this is, you know, finding that dual duty there. And so I think it's great to start with some of these cards that you're mentioning. And then if they're the best option you've got, then you've got it. But you can also look for those other cards that might be great replacements that fit the theme of your deck. An oldie but goodie that I think maybe could see some more play. It's a little on the slow side. Acidic Slime. Used to run in a lot of decks. Yeah. But just the flexibility of being able to destroy target land, way better than you might think. Because they are so they keep printing new ones that are just busted. Next up, I have combo win. For example, I don't want to do two or three card combos, something like Deceiver or Exarch, Splinter Twin. I prefer to go for much bigger combos that are easier for people to interact with. The example might be Tasa Orsoff Scion, plus the Enchantment Darkest Hour, which turns all creatures black. Plus a sack effect that you can do infinitely, like a Visceraseer, plus like a Blood Artist or something that might trigger when something dies. So you need like four or five pieces. And if somebody can't interact with that, I, I feel okay at that point. Let's do the infinite thing. Let's end the game. Yeah. Because um, I've given people plenty of opportunities to see it coming. Yeah. Usually I'm talking trash about it as it's happening, too. I'm just kind of like, you guys just wait. (laughs) You call attention to it when we play, and people don't know it's coming until it's too late. So I'm with you. I think it's important to have some sort of I win button. It might be a combo. It might be a creature with this massive ETB. It might be this one wild turn where you've got a ton of mana. But I think that every deck needs a way to end the game. And I think you're right. Having multiple pieces makes it so that... A, it's less likely to happen, but B, people can probably interact with it on several different axes. And if they can't, then maybe the game does need to end. I think it's important, too, last piece about it is that if your deck has an anchor, you always know what to play towards. Whereas there's a lot of times I feel, especially new players, might be playing a deck and be like, I don't even know where I'm at in the game. I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of playing random cards. And this way, at least you know you have something to what am I drawing towards? Why am I, you know, paying this extra mana now to try and dig? Well, now you know. And that gives you kind of like a foothold in the game, even if everything else has gone wrong for you. Last but not least, my favorite metric, and if you add all these up, they won't add up to 100. You just play whatever you want. But these are like the specific types of cards I always try to run. Yeah, I run, and this is a broad range, it really depends on the deck, Two to five fog or Aikido effects. Aikido being the martial art where you kind of use the person's energy against them. It's kind of like in the Sheldon Minery style of, oops, you hit yourself. Deflecting palm, red and white. You get to bounce that damage back at the source's controller. And so 
oh, great, you're coming at me with this massive 60-60 Galta. What if that Galta hit you instead? Right. Or, even better yet, with a new one that I've been playing, Windshaper Planetar. Oh, what does that do? Four and a white for a 4-4 flying angel with flash. You play it during the combat step, and you can change the target that the attacking creatures are aimed at. But basically what it does is that all of a sudden, you're being attacked by Crater Hoof, Behemoth, Avenger, Zendikar, or whatever. A mountain of creatures. Well, now I can take all those creatures, and I can slowly push them in a different direction. And be like, Windshaper Planetar comes down and says, What if you attacked this other person instead with 80, 100 power? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and just left me alone. And I think it's an amazing sort of effect. That's kind of why I don't run as many targeted removals or board wipes because I almost love when big creatures are on the battlefield because I run these effects and I'm like, hit me. <laughs> I D- dare you. <laughs> I dare you to hit me. Yeah. And I'll play them early too to let people know this is a deck that if I have open mana, yeah. there's a chance that what you think is going to happen is not. I love those types of cards too because one of my favorites is like Reigns of Power, blue, blue, and two. You get to oh, steal somebody's card. creatures and, and attack with them. So it's like, great, you got to kill that person. I'm going to reins of power after I let you do that, and then I'm going to do it to you. Sorry. And even simple fog effects. If somebody's doing the Crater Hoof Avengers Zendikar, they have tapped out. Yeah. Guess what that means? It's like, if you fog them, then they're wide open to the whole table after that. And I think, too, if you're willing to look for them, there are some fogs that have some cool utility as well. So in white, you've got Dawn Charm, which gives you different modes. There's a green one from Amonkhet, and it's green and one, and it fogs, or it has cycling two. And so, okay, maybe there aren't that many creature-heavy decks. Let me draw a card instead. Totally. Because I'd much rather have that utility of having it, and I can replace itself, than not have it at all. Absolutely. Let's talk about some things that don't work so well when we're building decks. Um, my first one is is don't just pull all those cards into a big giant pile because it's going to be really hard to whittle down what you don't need. I think it's really hard to go from the 300 cards you pulled, the 200 cards you pulled, to knock it down to a playable pile of 100 because you're going to be more tempted, I think, to play fewer lands. You're going to be more tempted to not have the appropriate card draw. Or you might run too many of a particular effect you're not thinking about that when you're actually willing them down. You're thinking, oh, I really like this Blood Artist effect. Let me see how many of those I can get. Blood Artist by itself is pretty good, and it might do all you need. Maybe toss in that Zulaport Cutthroat, and it's fine. You probably don't need as many as having that giant pile would allow for. Yeah, absolutely. That The synergy is, I think, what you miss when you have a 300-card pile. Right. You're thinking, like, well, I really like fireballs well if you have six fireballs you're really slow you know like there's a reason why you have different card types because you need them to all act at different points in the game to get you to your end game kind of stage my second thing that i think doesn't work well for when people are building new decks is thinking that you're done with the deck building process you have to play that game you have to try and goldfish it by yourself you have to try it on different platforms but I think that you really need to recognize that part of deck building is adjusting. You played the game once. What went well? What didn't go well? How can <laughs> you put all that together? And how can you adjust your deck based off of that? Yeah, agreed. And I think that kind of leads into 
my one point on like what doesn't work well, at least for me, I noticed that some people try to build the perfect deck from the get go without kind of playing it first. Yeah. And I guarantee you're going to play some cards and then think to yourself, why did I put this in here? This is not doing anything for me right now. And that's okay. Like, I feel like you come at it suboptimally first. Don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good, so to speak. Put the deck together with cards that you own, but maybe you don't have the perfect versions. And then you'll learn like the play patterns and you'll be like, oh, I really don't want this. Or I see some other cards and I'm like, that would be amazing in here. It's just a process. Yeah. And if you embrace the slowness of it, just like with food, if you cook it slow, it's going to come out so much better than yeah. if you try to zap it with a microwave. Right. And I think, too, you've got a note on here about playing on Arena. So tell us about why playing on Arena is a good thing. I've been playing Arena since it's onset, and it helps me, one, understand the new cards because they are super complicated. So yeah. if you have a machine telling you, this is how this card with 20 lines of text works then you'll go into the game store in a much more competent position and be able to recognize when new players are playing those cards as well against you. Second, it gives you an idea of the play pattern. You won't have yeah. all the best cards. You don't have Soul Ring on Brawl, but you can deck build competently. You can see how the deck works. You can see what it wants and stop yourself before you ever even get to the paper stage. I've got so many Brawl decks that I would never even dream of playing, Yeah, but it's just because that day it was like, make a blue-green deck and create, you know, the whatever the reward was that day. And I was like, well, I have to choose a blue-green commander. Let me choose something new. Yeah. And then, so it just opens your mind to, like, some newer options. Because there's, like, 350 commanders that come out every year. So. Right. <laughs> Before we started recording, I was talking to you about a Brawl deck that I really like. And it's Ratadravic. It's the Orzhov Legendary Matters. It creates copies of creatures that are legendary after they die. And I love that deck, but only on Brawl. Because my goal in that is to have Mondrak out, have Tesa that doubles the death triggers, and I want to make as many copies of legendary creatures when they die as possible. I would hate to track that in paper. And I think that's the other thing. Arena gives me the outlet to play that deck that I want mm, to play. Yeah. But I don't have to worry about remembering all the triggers because... Arena does it for me. And if I had to do that in person, nobody wants to sit there while I try and do the math, trying to double my tokens after the ability triggered twice, and then I get to double them again, and remembering, oh, I also have this uh, Sir Conrad that's pinging everyone. And that's kind of tough to play through. And I think that that's something that's really important for deck builders to recognize is, are you going to be an expert on your deck? On the first playthrough, probably not. But you have the tools to get better at it. You know, right. go to Moxfield, go to Architect, go to Brawl, and, and try and playtest those decks and see, do I like the play pattern, like you said? Am I familiar with the play pattern so I know what to expect? I also think, too, going along with that, don't feel uh, bad about playing 1v1 with Commander decks if it's a new deck. Right. Like, bring two new decks to the, the table if your friends are there early and you're still waiting on players from the group. Whip out two decks and be like, hey, can you help me play test these? It's going to be a much quicker game. You're going to have time to kind of figure it out. And it's a much better environment than under pressure with like three other players at the table. Some you might not know being like, okay, what is the 80th trigger I forgot to do? Right. Now? And just feeling bad the whole time. Yes, I think other people feel bad, but I think the player trying to compute all that feels bad too because 
they're not trying to waste anybody's time. They're just like, this is a complicated math equation. Yeah. And nobody's going to get mad at you for playing your, your game. I think that's important to remember. And and that's part of a good play group is people should encourage you to try new things and support you. But I think in return, there's a responsibility on you as a deck builder to respect their time and also take that kindness that they're giving you and be kind back by being prepared, you know, having the tokens you need, having the dice you need, whatever for that deck. Do you want to get into some of your other methods that you might have tried besides the MTG Goldfish? Yeah, so Tomer's outline is great, and I think it's a great place to start because he does a great job in his articles of including what comes in a pre-con and and how it's broken down, and it helps you to find out, okay, do I have enough mana sources? Do I have enough card draw? And it's a great place to start. What I've switched to is the 8x8 method, and I think this is based in drafting. Uh, There's a draft method that does something similar but this is adapted for Commander. And I'll, I'll post a link in the show notes to the website that I got this from. But I've been using this for a while now, and the numbers are slightly different. Um, but if you have your Commander and you start with a base of 35 lands, and you do eight piles of eight cards, mm. that's 64 more cards. That puts you at 100 right, right. there. And so the idea behind the 8x8 eight eight is you have eight groups of eight cards, and each grouping does a particular job. So you need to have the core four that's going to be ramp, card draw, interaction of some sort. That can be board wipes as well. And then your personal favorite cards. Because we can't forget to play those cards we want to play. And I think that too often I try to optimize my deck. And that takes out the fun of it. Mm-hmm. So for instance, a deck I'm working on right now is the new Aurelia that came out of Murders of Carlisle Manor. And I really want to play the Comet Stellar Pup from the Infinity set. (laughs) I want to play a goofy space dog that's making some squirrels, and it plays in. You know, if I get to attack with three creatures, with the Rayleigh, I get to draw a card. And so I made it a point to put that Comet Stellar Pup card in my personal favorites. And that way I don't forget to play these cards I want to play. The other four columns are going to be whatever your deck's trying to do. So, for instance... I'm taking Aurelia and I'm trying to make it a tokens deck. So I need to have a column that has token makers. Absolutely. So I've got Krenko in there. I've got other things that make token. And then the next one is a token enhancer. So how can I make my tokens stronger or or do more damage or whatever? And so we've got our Perforos in there. We've got War Leader's Call, so on and so forth. And so you need to fill out the remainder of those. Because if you're playing, say, a reanimator deck, one of those columns should be like the biggest, baddest reanimate targets you can have. Absolutely. Because if you're not, again, drawing towards something or playing towards a particular goal, then your deck's going to lose focus. Yeah, I love the looseness of the structure because it allows for creativity. It allows for your favorite cards, like Comet, that you should be playing if you want EDH to feel good at the end of the day. Yeah. Like, if you get to play Comet, you may not win that game, (laughs) but you got to play Comet. Right. And that is going to stick more than the wins and losses column, I believe. And it takes a little bit more upfront work because you have to figure out what those second four columns are going to be. But once you know like what your commander is trying to do, those other columns should kind of fill in themselves. And if they don't, then maybe reevaluate. Maybe you should look for a different commander that does something similar 
but it might give you a bit more guidance. And so it makes your deck building process easier. That could be a great test, to be honest. Like if you can't think of the other four columns, maybe this isn't the deck for you. Because yeah. you're not really sure what it wants to do anyway. And that may not be on you. That might just be, it's a commander that's kind of unfocused. Right. I, I think too, you know, we made a joke about how many legendary creatures are coming out. And I think that too often the legendary super type gets slapped onto a card and does it make for a great commander? No, not always, I don't think. Like the new Rakdos. It's great because you get to target somebody and it forces them to sacrifice things and you get to draw cards, but that's a one-off effect. And I think that's one of those cards that fits better than 99 than as being you know, the lead singer, the head honcho for your commander deck. Yeah, and a little secret that's just from the design standpoint is that oftentimes the legendary super type gets used to prevent a card from being too overwhelming in constructed formats because if they don't make it legendary then you can play four of but if they make it legendary then you might only be able to put two or three in your 60 card constructed deck so sometimes taylor is absolutely right it's a legendary creature in name only it was kind of made that way for a specific need at the time not because it was a legendary worthy card i think people are really concerned that wizards is building and and designing the card spaces straight for commander and while i do think that that is happening for sure yeah yeah i I think that this rakdos card as much as i like it i don't think that that's something that was built entirely for the commander table are there going to be people who find great ways to abuse that absolutely you know there are some really creative deck builders out there but you make a really good point that sometimes they do still have to worry about standard and other constructed formats. Every Even once draft, in a while. Right? Every once in a while, yeah. <laughs> so what's this next effect you've got here? Okay, so I don't really have, per se, a, a deck-building strategy other than the one I kind of outlined earlier that was sort of loose and uh, the type of cards I want to run. But what I wanted to highlight was that in November 2022, uh, Sam Black, a Magic Pro player of some renown, he turned content creator for Commander. And he's coming from outside of the box. So I always appreciate thought experiments that come from outside the box because I think we do have a tendency as human beings to fall into ruts, to fall into, I have to play 10 mana rocks, I have to play four board wipes, etc. It's nice to be able to step back from that and reevaluate depending on the Commander because I think your Commander is very specific in what it wants to do. And if it's a two mana Commander, I don't want to be running two mana rocks because I'm going to come to a point where I have a two mana rock and I have a two mana commander and they're both able to be played and I'm in conflict with what what the deck wants to do. I'd much rather be running land of war elves, one mana things, utopia sprawl, whatever, than my two mana commander than having this rock come into conflict with it. Right. So what Sam Black basically said in his video, and we'll post a link in uh, the description, is that if your commander runs this low curve, consider, instead of running all those extra mana rocks, just running straight 40 lands to ensure that you constantly hit your mana drops. Because, for instance, if you're running that three mana elf, El... I can't remember his name now. He's like, every time a creature hits a player, then it's a Simic card. Oh. He's one of the first annoying cards where they basically play all one ones in the deck. Yeah. So he's three mana. Edric, Spymaster of Trust. Edric, Spymaster of Trust. Thank you so much. If you're in an Edric, Spymaster of Trust deck, you don't want ten mana rocks in that because those aren't creatures that hit the opponent. And if you're casting that mana rock on turn two, 
did that help you actually get your commander out on turn three? No, no. it didn't. Yeah. And you want that turn three commander to hit the table and have two creatures already on the table to draw two cards. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's just important to use this philosophy, not just for mana rocks, but like really think about what does my deck want me to do? Yeah. Imagine yourself playing it out or just goldfish it online or play it on Brawl and be like, what are the tropes that I've fallen into in deck building that I can skirt around or maybe I can do something different with this deck and just try it out. There's no harm in trying. It's a casual format. And you might find that you've unlocked some sort of code for that one commander that can put you at the next level. I I think it's really important, like you said, to to think about what that deck is asking you to do, what the commander is kind of forcing you to do. Uh, I'll post the Google Sheets that I made for the Aurelia deck and put that in the show notes as well so people can see I've got my columns, I've got my vegetables, I'm doing the thing that I need to do, but I also get to have some fun along the way. All right, I think that this next one is something that everybody should be careful about. Mm. And I think that the people at EDH Rec will tell you the same thing. Absolutely. And it's this idea of the average deck list. So the guys at EDH Retcast, they'll point this out and they'll talk about it. And I think it's really important to know that if you hit average deck and you're looking at how everybody else is building the deck, two things are going to happen. One, you're going to be playing the same deck as everyone else, and that might not like spark a sense of joy. It might not bring you fun. Maybe they're not playing that really cool card that you wanted to include because you had a good memory of it when you cracked it in your draft for when the set released. And then two, I think sometimes we'll see some weird inclusions that don't make sense, but they somehow stuck on. And so if you go back and you listen to our Sarkhan Soul of Flame decklist episode, then you'll see a great example there when it comes to Crucible of Fire. We talk about why it doesn't actually do what Sarkhan wants it to do, right? but it's played in 50% of decks. I think with so many pre-cons coming out in every set too, what the EDH rec guys have mentioned before, um, and we should just highlight here briefly, is that those average deck lists often include cards that were with the pre-con itself. Yeah. They are not the optimal versions or maybe the most fun versions. And sometimes in pre-cons, they just throw in kind of random reprints or cards that are like, if you wanted to go a different direction with the deck, you could play this instead. Right. But that's not synergistic with the commander necessarily. I think the Wizards is doing a great job with pre-cons and making them a bit more focused now. That's true. I- I've kept the Boros uh, Tokens Matter deck from All Will Be One. Mm-hmm. And it has been startlingly good out of the box. And I've decided I'm going to keep it as a pre-con. And I think that's a great deck to have in my bag if somebody is playing kind of lower power. Maybe they're new to the game. It does some really cool things, but it's easy to combat if you've met some of these metrics. You know, it struggles against board yeah, wipes. Yeah, what's it weak against? <laughs> it struggles against board wipes for sure. Um, it doesn't produce flyers, and, and most of the tokens that are going to get double strike from Neali are one ones, and mm. so they're really you know chipping in for one two damage once Neali hits the field. And so I think that's the biggest thing is I'm not always creating these big massive threats. I'm creating lots of little ones, and yeah. those are oftentimes easy to block. So I, I think that's what it's weak against, but it's much more focused. I mean, out of the box. It's got some great token creators in there in Court of Grace. I get to make some angels out of that. And then those 4-4s turn into 
double striking four fours. It's That's great. when you know you're living the dream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. So some precons, they're great for this effect, but like you said, I think that some precons have cards that are more for reprint purposes than synergy purposes. And those have that holdover effect where people think, oh, I have to play sure. card X because it's included in the average deck. Break down your precon with the 8x8 method. See if it fits those eight metrics. See if there's cards that sit outside of those boxes, and those might be the ones that are, you know, just there for reprint value or just there to, like, send the deck in a new direction. Feel free to take those out as you're adjusting at home. Let's start to wrap it up. Yeah. What are some final thoughts you have when it comes to deck building, Sean? For me, first and foremost, I want to have fun if I'm winning or losing. Because in Commander, you lose 75% of the time. If you're sitting in pods of four, on average, you're going to lose 75% of the time. With Sarkin, maybe only 50% of the time. <laughs> Humble brags. But I don't care like how good the deck is or how bad the deck is. Like I built a deck that never won a single game based on 100-handed one. A terrible card from Theros. Yeah. But I made it my own. I actually altered a lot of the cards in it by hand. And it was just super fun to build and construct and to show off. Um, and more than most of the decks I've built, honestly, I, I became kind of known for that deck in the local playgroup and store. Um, this is a guy that built a deck with nothing but hands in it. <laughs> so <laughs> for me... It, I use deck building as my creative flourish. Yes, I, I love winning a game just as much as most people love, but uh, there's other things to EDH. There's the social aspect. There's the political aspect. Like Whatever it is that you find fun with EDH, build your decks around that. Don't focus so much on, like, is this the best deck? I think to counter that just a little bit. Sure. I think that my... Like, when you're building a deck, you, you want to optimize it to a certain point, right? You want to make sure that your deck functions. And so for my thought, okay, I recognize I'm not going to win every game, but I need to know how my deck is like planning on winning. Yeah. If, if I'm just hoping for the best, <laughs> I'm only ever going to get the worst, right? And so this is coming from me who I wanted to win at standard FNMs. I wanted to win at, at different tournaments and things like that. And so I needed to know like what my deck was supposed to be doing. Hmm. And so if you're a little too loosey-goosey with it and you don't have that plan, I think you're going to be setting yourself up for a really bad time at the table. And I think that puts a bit of a bad taste in players' mouths when they think, oh, I worked really hard on this deck and and they ganged up on me. Well, maybe they didn't. Maybe you just put out one really scary threat and people had to take care of it. And that's unfortunate. But mm. I think if you're building a good deck and you have some interaction Maybe you're able to counter that spell that's going to destroy your creature. Maybe you're going to be able to path to exile or swords to plowshares their biggest blocker so you can come through. Right. You got to know, am I going to win through combat damage? Then make sure that combat damage happens. If right. you want to build in a combo finish, make sure that you have a way to, to build that combo and have some redundancy for and it. And protect it. And protect it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Like, let me, I guess, adjust the previous phrase. Yes, I... Primarily focus on creativity with some decks, but I think that I learned to ride the bike before I learned to do tricks with the bike. Yeah. Like, it's very important for especially any beginning deck builder. These metrics are great at helping you create a deck that works because honestly, there's nothing worse than having a creative deck that doesn't do anything at all when you thought it would. 
because it's kind of heartbreaking. You spend all your time and energy building this beautiful picture and it, you, no one gets to see it because it just doesn't even operate on the level of most EDH decks. You know, I, I played that pre-con out of the box against somebody who worked really hard on a new deck and my deck did its thing because, like I said, I think Wizards is doing a better job. Right. But then this newer player, their deck was so unfocused, it didn't get to do its thing. And I felt bad, but then I had to think to myself, well, I'm playing a pre-con. Notoriously lower-powered, and it, it's I, that's why I'm keeping it the way it is, because I think it's great to have a deck that can play at a lower-powered table. So it gives people that opportunity to learn to play their decks as well. So, follow a template is what we're saying. Yeah, It gives you the structure you need. So that you can build your bike first. <laughs> absolutely. Before you put on the little, like, what do you call the things that go on the side of the wheel or whatever, on these trick bikes? I don't know, but that's just BMX. You're yeah. ready for BMX. You're ready for BMX after a while. One suggestion that I just thought of, not in our show notes or anything, but something I would like to recommend. If you're building new decks or you're new to deck building, see if your playgroup, who may have some older or more veteran players to the format, See if they would be willing to do a deck swap game. This is a type of thing that can help. If you're playing their deck, which is built synergistically and has a point to it, you will recognize the intricacies from the inside out, which is a much better learning method. And they can play your deck and kind of, if you're okay with it, give you some advice or tips. Like, I might put this in instead. Or here's a card that didn't do a whole lot when I had it in my hand. You might want to consider trying something new. We've done that a bunch of times. Mm-hmm. I remember uh, playing your old Surak Dragon deck. Oh, awesome. And this was an older one. And I just remembered getting to play this. And I thought, man, he has some great ideas on how this deck works and what's going on with it. That was your that's first a, deck, wasn't it? Surak Dragon Claw? It was. And it was not anywhere near as good as that's what okay. you had. He's got Flash, which is the <laughs> most important piece of that commander. True. True, true. <laughs> I think that wraps us up for this episode If you have questions or thoughts or things that maybe we missed, you know, just feel free to send us an email at rule zero, the number zero podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at rule zero podcast. Feel free to tweet at us. Let us know your thoughts. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget. In magic, there's no problem that a rule zero conversation cannot solve. (laughs) 